Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Every week, we talk about this insane time in American politics, break down a few stories, and try and make sense of things. And I'm Charlie Warzel, a senior tech writer here at BuzzFeed. I'm coming to you from San Francisco this week, where it is very early. Charlie, what do we have on deck? So uh, today we are going to talk about the obvious story, which is that um, James Comey was fired on Tuesday as the FBI director. We kind of can't avoid that one, I think. Uh, we're going to talk about what is true and what is false about the Republican health care bill that is basically sending everyone into a terror spiral on social media. And lastly, we're going to talk about uh, last weekend's um, French presidential election and the role that trolls and misinformation played or didn't play in all of that. I'm basically always in a terror spiral. But lastly, just so you know, it is 11 a.m. on Thursday in Washington, D.C. and 8 a.m. in San Francisco, where Charlie is. And I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what could have happened. Joining us in Washington, D.C. is Zoe Tillman, who covers legal issues for BuzzFeed News. Hey, Zoe. Hi. Thanks for having me. So it was a pretty exciting week, I guess we could call it that, if we want to call it that. Tuesday evening around 530 was just like this holy shit moment. The news broke that Trump had fired James Comey. Yes. Uh, came out of nowhere. I think everyone was going about their day as if it was a normal day. And then (laughs) (laughs) uh, late in the day, uh, the news suddenly broke that uh, the president had fired Director Comey not in person. Comey was across the country on the West Coast for an FBI event and found out remotely. Found uh, out. It seemed like he found out because he was giving I had read this. I think it was in The Times that he was giving a speech to uh, FBI recruits and on TVs in the background said that Comey had been fired. And he was he thought it was a joke, a very elaborate prank. Oh, yeah, boy. Can, I, can I can I just say that I think that it's it's is a <laughs> how did he think they did that prank, by the way, because that's this very <laughs> elaborate to like create like a like a fake news setup i don't know i i just i thought that that was like i thought that was sort of like too too veepish to uh to to be true almost that's kind of where we are though in in our lives that everything is a little too veepish to be true so the rollout was er, the rollout the announcement of this firing was incredibly confusing to the point where stephen colbert gets up in front of his audience and announces the firing of james comey less than 10 minutes ago FBI Director James Comey has just been fired by Donald Trump. To which the entire audience applauds. Huge, huge Donald Trump fans here tonight. And And he then tries to backtrack and say, no, 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 this is actually like bad. So, uh, Zoe, a a lot of people in my timeline basically since this entire thing kind of happened uh, have basically been like, I'm really scared and you should be scared too, or I'm talking to people who are in the know who aren't, you know, super reactionary and they're freaked out. I saw that sort of more than, than I'd seen it other times in this, you know, first, I don't know, 110 days or whatever. And I guess, you know, my question is, what what do you make of that? And, and, and sort of how how weird is this and how jarring and unnerving is this? in the context of, you know, greater government happenings. 
Yeah, so the bigger picture here is that the FBI director serves normally a 10-year term. And the idea behind that is that this is supposed to be a job that transcends the political. It's 10 years, so that would cross at least two administrations, right? Um, Comey was confirmed four years ago, so he was not even halfway through his first term. And the FBI is extraordinarily protective of its independence. They really cherish that. And um, so at a minimum, the perception alone that his firing was politically motivated is a big problem for the administration. It uh, very understandably, within that broader context, freaked a lot of people in Washington out who felt like there were certain things that were untouchable about how things work in Washington. And if it turns out to be more than a perception that this was politically motivated, which the White House has said it was not, they said that this was about him making mistakes that undermine trust in the Bureau. Um, but if it does turn out that it was politically motivated, then uh, yes, we all have a problem. It is a different firing, though, than when Sally Yates, who was the acting attorney general for a time, basically put out a statement from the Department of Justice saying she wouldn't enforce the travel ban executive order, which was kind of her going out and, you know, like she was never going to stay at DOJ under Trump. And she just decided that she would take this moment to go out in flames, I guess. Yeah. And for all we knew, even a the day before Comey was fired, he was in it for the long haul. He had just testified on the Hill. He had talked about his future plans for the Bureau going forward. Um, there was really no indication that he was out the door or at loggerheads with the administration in the same way that someone like a Sally Yates expectedly was. Yeah. So we don't know at this point then how how much the Russia investigation, which James Comey was obviously, you know, actively a part of, he, the Senate Intelligence Committee saw him as a huge ally to their own investigation. But we don't know how much that played a part in his firing. That's right. Um, the rationale that Attorney General Jeff Sessions and his deputy Rod Rosenstein provided were uh, rooted in the uh, in Comey's handling of the Hillary Clinton email scandal. There was no discussion of Russia. Uh, however, the one person who did bring it back to the present was the president, who in his termination letter to James Comey made a point of saying, even though you've told me three times <laughs> I'm not under investigation, I still don't have the confidence in you to proceed. So the only person who's brought this back to the Russia probe was the president. But other than that, there's been no explicit uh, explanation that says because you're investigating the White House, this is why we're firing Can we you. just pause and meditate a moment on the justification that it was his handling of the Hillary Clinton emails that caused him to get fired considering Jeff Sessions, Donald Trump, and many other members of, of the former campaign, now administration, really praised his decision in the fall before the election to reopen the investigation and announce it 
publicly. Yes. And the uh, White House spokesperson yesterday was asked that very question. (laughs) And her response was, well, uh, a candidate responding to events that are politically beneficial to him in the moment is different from a commander in chief who's taken the oath of office uh, responding to the best way to run a government. Right. It's kind of genius to frame it as like <laughs> a truly presidential act. <laughs> um, like so benevolent. Yeah. And they absolutely. were all so surprised too that Democrats would come out and criticize the firing of Comey considering how much they all really actively hate James Comey and blame him for Hillary Clinton's loss. Like it totally caught them off guard that Democrats would be upset by this and not really understanding that like there was a larger political implication to firing your FBI director. Right. And it's an interesting thought process to go back and say, well, if on January 21st, when Trump had just come in, he had said, you know, now that I'm in office, I'm relieving the FBI director of his position because setting aside everything that happened, I, uh, I've i been advised that what he did was not correct and that he made a mistake and I don't have faith in him going forward. If he had done that at the beginning, you wonder if he would have had more bipartisan support. You've done a lot of reporting on sort of what happens next. And Jeff Sessions, who's the attorney general, has recused himself from all Russia-related things because of his role in the campaign. As they're moving forward, picking a new FBI director, what, how does Jeff Sessions play into that? As of now, he is a leader in that process. We know that uh, yesterday he was involved in interviewing four or five uh, candidates for the interim FBI director job, so he's clearly in the room. Um, What we don't know for sure yet is if the Russia investigation comes up, if a candidate starts talking about it, if someone else in the room asks about it. What we don't know is, will the attorney general stand up and walk out of the room? Or does he feel that it's sufficiently far away enough from the meat of the investigation or the substance of the investigation itself that it doesn't fall under actually that recusal policy that he laid out for himself? Wait, so so Session says that he's he's going to recuse himself from anything related to the campaign and yet he's he's such a big part of these these interviews is that something that that can like can that distinction even be drawn do you think it's hard to say i mean in talking with legal ethics experts they were even uh, divided among themselves about how far that type of recusal policy that he outlined for himself could go i spoke with someone who said he should be completely out of any involvement of interviewing a candidate just because it is the biggest thing on the FBI's plate right now. Uh, But I also spoke with other folks who said, you know, the FBI does a lot of other things besides the Russia probe and the attorney general needs to have confidence in his FBI director. And so extricating the sessions completely also wouldn't make total sense. It does seem like right now he is moving full steam ahead. Like he has been, you confirmed, like he has been in at least four interviews. Yes. Interviewing people. Correct. <laughs> Maybe not so grave for Mr. Sessions. <laughs> Sounds like a real pickle. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks for having me. 
So uh, another thing that happened last week uh, kind of feels like last year, I guess, at this Good point. Lord. Uh, was the Republicans finally got their health care bill through the House. Uh, it's now being debated and things are happening over in the Senate. But joining us to talk about all of this, kind of what's true and what's not true uh, about the health care bill is Sarah Mims, who edits Capitol Hill coverage for BuzzFeed News. Hi, hey guys. Hey. I guess you know we spend a lot of time just in our daily lives kind of in the weeds about this policy, but that doesn't translate all the time to the Internet. And <laughs> on the Internet, after this health care bill passed, there was a lot kind of flying around about what was in the bill, what was not in the bill, what this bill would actually do. So... I guess what I want to know from you is, you know, you and our colleague Paul McLeod spent a lot of time breaking down what's true and what's not true. Can you tell us a little bit about the biggest myths that you that you guys saw? Oh, yeah. So I think like the the biggest one that's flying around out there is this idea that like my dad has cancer or you know, I've suffered from postpartum depression and now my health care is going to go away. That is not the case. Um, basically, what the bill does is like it, it maintains uh, this Obamacare rule that prevents health insurers from dropping you just because you have a pre-existing condition. You cannot lose your health care just because you are sick. What it does do is that it allows states that want to to request these waivers, which would basically allow insurance companies to charge you more if you have a pre-existing condition. Um, that can only happen in the states that request these waivers and they have to prove to the Department of Health and Human Services that what they're doing would actually end up in more people being covered. So like, that's the big one. You can't lose your insurance. Yes, it could end up costing more. Um, that's not going to happen if you are currently insured. But if you allow your insurance to lapse or you're looking for new insurance, that could definitely be a problem. Um, the thing is, like, there are so many ifs yeah. <laughs> around all of right. this. Like, this health care bill has only passed the House. The Senate's going to make a ton of changes from what it's sounding like over there. So it's not clear if this is going to become law anyway. Well, and the other, th- the other thing seems like it's just so – this stuff's really complicated to begin with, and it feels like, you know, this happens so quickly, and the subject matter is so complicated and conditional that understand why there's a lot of confusion, it seems. Oh, totally. I mean, the same thing happened with Obamacare. And for years afterwards, there were a lot of misconceptions about what that actually meant. Like, this stuff is very, very complicated. Um, actually, almost immediately after the health care bill passed, I had two of my girlfriends text me and say, like, uh-oh, like, being a woman is a pre-existing condition. Getting pregnant is a pre-existing condition. Having a C-section, like, we're all going to lose our health care um, just because we're ladies. And, you know, like... Uh, that's not really true either. Like, there's just so, so yeah. much flying around. Um, one thing that we looked into is, like, being a woman is not a pre-existing condition. Um, they cannot charge you more because you're a woman. Um, that was true before Obamacare, but they're keeping that that part in this health care bill. So you cannot be charged more than a man just because you're a woman. You could, in those states that take waivers, be charged for some things that only affect women. So, like, there is some truth to that. Um, the the C-section example is a good one. C-sections can lead to f- more health care problems down the road. And so insurance companies in those states, again, like, if, 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 if. <laughs> um, they could end up charging you more money for that. 
I mean, the the amazing thing is like very smart people I know were like posting on Facebook and Twitter, like this is the law now. Oh no, yeah, it it's not. Yeah, like, <laughs> it passed. It passed with a very small majority in the House of Representatives, and there is an awful lot that has to happen, including President Donald Trump having to sign a piece of legislation for anything to become law. Right. Right. Which is like not to say there aren't like legitimate concerns on both sides of the aisle about policy, but uh, the nuance somehow gets lost on social media. Yes, it's uh, very surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I shocking, think we all know social everyone. media to be a place of just true facts all the time. Um, no, I think like we've gotten to a point where Republicans and Democrats find themselves so far apart that they're kind of willing to believe anything about the other party. And so I think, you know, a lot of my more liberal friends, when they saw sort of the scare, the scariest headlines about this, they were like, oh, well, of course, Republicans would do that and just sort of believed it. Yeah. And it's it's kind of difficult to counteract that. And I think that's a problem that, you know, Republicans in the House are obviously having, but it's a problem that we in the media are having, too. Right. I think I think one of the big problems is that you have essentially this group of, you know, civilians, normal people who are paying such gr- like granular attention to politics in a way that they never have before. And yet and, and, and following, you know, like every minor update, but also not necessarily understanding the way that. DC works or that the government works or, you know, not knowing that because this just passed narrowly in the house that it's then going to go on. I mean, it's almost like the schoolhouse rock bill becomes the law ignorance, but also at the same time, you know, like I'm refreshing Twitter every 10 seconds. And I think that that just contributes to this super sort of unproductive and like toxic atmosphere in which you're willing to believe in every nightmarish thing yeah, and, and and you know just enough to make a really kind of convincing argument, or to know that you know, oh yeah, they're probably like it's just like them to sneak something you know horrible into this bill, but you don't quite know the process or enough to be informed. It's this really awful sort of middle ground, and I think it's like weaponized by you know a a group of sort of like hashtag resistance people who you know have reasonable intentions but are you know kind of not really playing by the facts i think the biggest um piece of sort of misinformation about this bill is that uh, rape and domestic assault sexual assaults yeah. are now a pre-existing condition and that is not true it's not true no it's not true um Technically, before Obamacare, that was something that insurance companies could look at and call a pre-existing condition, but it wasn't something that was actually happening. Um, it had really, really uh, fallen by the wayside as like a practice uh, before Obamacare passed. In fact, right now, forty-eight states prevent you from using um, sexual assault yeah, or domestic the law. violence. Yeah, it is the law in forty-eight states. Uh, the other two are Idaho and Vermont. The American Health Care Act doesn't specifically address that because it's not really an issue or a thing that is happening. That was the one that I think was probably the hardest to sort of knock down. Because it's shocking. Because it's shocking. And 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 it was everywhere. It is true that, like, if you are a victim of sexual assault or domestic abuse and you need... um, 
an STD test that puts you on medication for an STD. That could be counted as a pre-existing condition. Or perhaps if you have um, serious mental trauma as a result and you have to continually go to the psychiatrist and get a lot of expensive drugs, like that could also be uh, considered a pre-existing condition that could raise your rates. But again, only in the states that request these waivers and if, <laughs> if they get if they these get waivers them, and if yeah. this bill even passes. Right. That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to put into a uh, the headline of a Facebook post. <laughs> right. Right. Or in 140 characters on right. Twitter. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Sarah. We'll we'll stay tuned for what happens in the Senate. Thank you. So, uh, by the way, guys, I don't know if you can hear this, but uh, it appears that someone's constructing a house next door to me in my Airbnb in San Francisco. So I I apologize for any and all uh, circular saw noises. (laughs) You should, like, just not leave New York City again, Charlie. I feel like bad things happen to you. Earlier, there was a garbage truck that was just idling outside for about 15 (laughs) minutes, just like compacting and like sucking down trash. And I thought that's actually like a really, um, really appropriate noise for for the the subject matter. Let's suck down some more trash and (laughs) talk about talk about sad French trolls. That was Uh, an amazing segue. That was thank you. That was very good. I'm getting better at this. So. So before this week's uh, French election, a somewhat familiar thing happened. So basically what happened is Friday night, uh, a whole bunch of um, the candidate Emmanuel Macron's emails were leaked out onto the Internet. And this came about 24 hours before a mandatory um, French media blackout, which starts 24 hours before people go to the polls to vote. So you basically had this, like in in 2016, this massive dump of information on a candidate that's, you know, borders on highly personal and and, and very, you know, professionally revealing right before people were going to vote. And and it sort of was this, you know, repeat of a lot of what we saw with the trollish factions of the internet uh, in the last months of our election, and it didn't play out in the same way at all. And it didn't play out for a number of reasons. My understanding of uh, reading Ryan Broderick's coverage uh, for BuzzFeed was that the the trolls ne parlaient pas français, and they didn't translate a lot of what they were, the information they were trying to spread. And frankly, the French can't be bothered to read stuff in English. Yeah. So is it that was, right? I think given the timing of this information being released there there a just wasn't a lot of time to sort of mobilize in uh, in multiple languages and and Mm -hmm. so what you had was a lot of people sort of uh, American trolls putting out information um, in English which you know is is going to be sort of if if the Clinton uh, or if if the Podesta emails were you know in a in a different language and you know we had to sort of like go and throw them into google translate i mean it's just it's a barrier um and yeah and i think that you know i think the trolls probably didn't sort of realize that the other side of this is that it's the the, the french press a, a, as a whole were very good at batting down the the misinformation um 
they um, uh, Ryan Broderick reported in in this piece for BuzzFeed News that you know they are actually um, great at at debunking hoaxes and kind of have that's been a staple, maybe even more so than you know than than the the, the U.S. press um, for a while now. I think what's really interesting here is that this really showed that there's kind of a a symbiotic relationship between these you know trolls who are spreading this misinformation and the press and i think that that this really kind of exposed to a degree how much you know the the sort of new disruptive apparatus of misinformation relies on the older establishments to sort of you know to spread get it, it moving to, right. yeah exactly like you like and you need a mainstream media for it to get into the mainstream you do, but I do think that one one other sort of like the flip side to that is that a lot of people said just bar none that this didn't work, right? right. Um, that this is that this was a, a failure, and and you know I in my reporting I've spoken to Jack Posobiec, who is sort of the um, the U.S. pro-Trump social media presence who who spread the uh, the hashtag Macron leaks mm-hmm. and sort of who um, was at the White House the other day, right? He was. He was at the White House on Tuesday okay. um, during all the all the craziness. Um, and you know he's gotten a lot of flack, and that's kind of neither here nor there for this. Um, but I spoke to him about this and and sort of said, you know, like I spoke to him on Saturday night before the election. And I asked him, you know, what what do we what do you get out of this? You know, does it matter if uh, if Macron wins or Le Pen wins to you? And it seemed like his takeaway was essentially that what he, they wanted to do with all this information is to show that, you know, that they are willing to kind of comb through all of the, the all of the crap and and always presented as real news. Like the, the fact that it was timed at the uh, right before this media blackout was actually strategic. It oh. actually was was meant to show that, you know, while the real media is putting down the wall and 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 is, you know, sort of adhering to these archaic old rules, this new insurgent media is going to like work overtime and, you know, sift through all you know the nitty gritty details and surface it. And so it was really kind of, to some extent, an attempt to indoctrinate a whole nother set of young French voters to this sort of, you know, online fever swamp world of journalism. And I think that what we don't know right now is how effective that was among, you know, online savvy younger french people so they so they 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 did it in part to show that they could do it do you think that like in future elections this is something we will continue to see like if they don't consider it a failure conceivably they'll go and try again at some point oh yeah 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 i mean everyone i talked to said in the sort of the american pro-Trump troll world that this was really just like you know a a gut check for them or a you know like a sort of like a, a status check to see like where they are to sort of you know <laughs> stretch out and uh, <laughs> and get limber again for you know for for 2018 and and see you know how much influence they really have can can they just completely subvert the mainstream media and it turns out you know no so I think I think this is like maybe a little bit humbling 
but I also think that it's 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 potentially motivating. And anyone who thinks that like, well, you know, it uh, it didn't work, and there's you know, <laughs> there's not the the nationalist revolution across Europe has has been stopped. I think that's not giving the trolls the credit that they they actually kind of deserve because they're very tenacious it didn't occur to me until just this moment that we get to do this with like hundreds of house seats and we get to like yes. go through this situation again with like hundreds of house seats and senate seats and, I, and I think that yeah <laughs> Which is, oh no it's I mean it's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be like really wild really unprecedented and I think that what this also shows more than anything else is that uh, I'm not as familiar with this world, but I feel like, you know, there's always this big focus on like opposition research yeah. and, and whatever you can do. But really now sort of like the opposition file is just like the security infrastructure of whoever's running's email. Right. Or like whoever, like finding some guy's Reddit account and finding, you know, he posts on X forum all the time. I, I think that like your digital footprint is now... Is now part of the oppo file. Completely. Ugh. On that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> no One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer and Eleanor Kagan. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Agaranesh Ashagre and Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel. And if you've been liking the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. We'll love you for it. <laughs>